I think we've got a real twist. There aren't many podcasts doing what we're doing. There's a very few doing odd history with dick jokes. In a whole, yeah, in, a, in an odd way. <laughs> Absolutely. In a silly... You're right. In a silly way. Definitely. We found our niche. <laughs> we're doing stuff that's a little bit more tucked away in the annals of history. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, the annals of history is where we want to be. Yeah, tucked right up in the annals of history. In the dusty old annals, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fusty. Have you heard the word fusty before? <laughs> I love the word fusty. It's fun- oh, you a have great heard word. it. <laughs> I learned it from a client. Fusty, brilliant word. And what, in what context, I dread to ask, but I'm going to ask, in what context was one of your personal training clients describing something as fusty? I think she and was describing... And what is a fusty anal? <laughs> you know, she was... I think she was describing 50-year-old men flirting with her as being quite fusty. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Fusty 50-year-old men, I think. It's a great word because it can be kind of whatever you want it to be. <laughs> I'm getting an image of these 50-year-old men kind of like, supposedly, if a woman is flirting with a man, she's like twirling her hair. Yeah, I get yeah. the image of all of these 50-year-old men listening to her stories and kind of twirling their ear hair or their nasal hair flirtatiously. <laughs> <laughs> that is very fusty. That's, it is very fusty. It's a very fusty thing to do. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the, as you can tell, adult-humoured history podcast in which two friends on different sides of the world with lovely warm bottoms discuss history topics on a theme each week. The topic we decide the week in advance, so if you want to know what the topic is, you have to go back and listen to last week's episode. No, only joking, we'll tell you in a second. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to tell you, you have to guess. <laughs> Give us more downloads. We're download whores. <laughs> yeah. All we want is your downloads. And your love, but mostly your downloads. You need to get the hit. Anyway, <laughs> yes, we decide the topic the week in advance, but everything else that happens is a surprise. We know what we're going to talk about, but the other person doesn't. Hilarity and bum jokes ensue. And what is our topic this week, Tom, for those who uh, can't be asked to go back and listen? The topic is treasure. That was a dramatic pause. <laughs> it, do you know why it was a dramatic pause? Because you cut out. <laughs> so oh. I just guessed. I just guessed. It was like when you go to catch a ball and then suddenly you realise you're staring at the sun. So you just kind of <laughs> waggle your ha- hands around, <laughs> estimating the trajectory of the ball. And if you catch it, you, yeah. Well, you caught it. Well done, Tom. The topic <laughs> is treasure. <laughs> Very good. And a good topic as well. A topic that could easily we, we can easily come back to because it's fun, isn't it? It's, it's good fun talking about buried treasure and things. It is a lot of fun talking about buried treasure. I I have this issue where we talk about a subject that's really wide open in that I get spoiled for choice and then I panic and I can't think of anything until the very last minute. So I actually really struggled this week, but because there were too many options because I'm Fair an enough. idiot. Because you're an idiot because you're an indecisive fool. Yes. <laughs> How did you find it this week? I Yeah, I found it quite easy and I've gone down a slightly different route, which is what I try to do. So I found another source... It's a very, very significant source when talking about hoards, so buried treasure that's discovered, because it gives us an idea of why people bury stuff. Excellent. It's often referred to when discussing treasure hoards, and I actually studied treasure hoards for a few different modules at university. It's a really good, fun topic. Well, I will probably, in that case, not surprise you with anything that I'm talking about today, but hey-ho! It's fun. I thought this was quite funny. We've had some rather abusing interactions with uh, listeners. We have had some great comments this week. We've had some crackers. I like the chap, the French chap. Yes. Who is listening to a podcast to learn English. Yes. You couldn't really have chosen a better podcast to learn the subtle linguistic art of innuendo, <laughs> could you? No. <laughs> so welcome to you. God help anyone who's learning to speak English from these two fuckers. Quite apt, really, isn't Please, it? I really hope, Giro, uh, who wrote to us and, and said that, I really hope, for your sake, you're not learning this for some kind of job interview that you've got coming up. Because <laughs> if you use some of the language we use in a professional environment, it's not going to go well for you, my little French friend. It's <laughs> And also, I feel like we should apologise for all our references to the French in previous episodes. He obviously has only listened to one. For the yes. record, I love, I genuinely love France and I very much enjoy France and French culture and French people. So, I, yes, I just also like doing silly impressions of them. I think it's fairly apt, really, that, that we have a French person learning English from us because we learnt our awful French accents watching a lower low, didn't we? Which is another place where you <laughs> can did. learn the subtle art 
of innuendos. <laughs> Which re- reminded me of the phrase, you should be thankful that the RAF bummers are still farting for your freedom. <laughs> <laughs> From the policeman in Hello, Hello. Um, <laughs> the policeman's the best one. I was pissing by the door when I held a couple of shats. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant, brilliant sitcom. What other comments have we got? Well, we had the chap who gave you a bit of a classical dressing down, Sam. He, he took your gluteus maximus to the vomitorium and gave it a damn good decimation, didn't he, that chap? <laughs> he um, did. <laughs> and, and on a serious note, he did so in a very friendly and positive way. So there's absolutely no criticism for that chap who pointed out that... We did make a factual error. Sam got a small... Yeah, a small detail wrong in one of our previous podcasts. Yeah, so thank you, Joshua Trowbridge, 75, who uh, said that Claudius was killed by Titus Milo's guards, not Cicero's. He was in exile at that point. Despite that annoying, well, actually, comment by me, you're my absolute favourite podcast, so thank you for that. And it's not an annoying point, it's a very good point. And I fudged my facts, and I apologise. Unreservedly. (laughs) Also, congratulations to the guy who commented, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) that's going on the posters and and i guess the other one that's been quite good is the one that says quite bad which is what makes it so good (laughs) yeah again that's going on the poster (laughs) it's quite an art form to master though isn't it sam it's the it's like the badly behaved kids in history classes at school who get away with it because they get the best grades that's kind of that was me (laughs) exactly that's kind of us isn't it Um, (laughs) i literally used to fall asleep in every history class at school my history (laughs) teacher who was a very lovely south african lady would tap me awake and ask me a question i'd give the right answer and fall back asleep again (laughs) it was a very warm room And, and she couldn't be angry with me because i always knew the answer and in my leaving book from school she drew a picture of me sleeping on a desk oh very nice we used to have we used to have a crazy Welsh lady called Mrs Thomas, who was lovely. In case she's listening, and she was a great teacher, but she was completely batty. One lesson, Mrs Thomas was frantically trying to set up the TV to watch an episode of World at War or something like that, because she clearly had got behind with the marking. And um, <laughs> and um, when she went out of the room to try and find something, one of my mates reached over, grabbed the remote, took the batteries out, put them in the wrong way round, and put the remote back again. And so what, what followed was about 20 minutes of this Welsh lady going absolutely apeshit because she couldn't work out why the remote control wasn't working. <laughs> Which I thought was quite amusing. <laughs> right, I think that's all the comments, isn't it? Should we get on with the podcast? Let's do it. Oh, actually, someone commented funny and interesting. Thank you, indeed. I, I can't pronounce your name. It's a random string of numbers and letters. Right, should we flip a coin this week? given that we flip something every week and it's treasure week and I don't think we've ever done a coin. Oh, yeah, good thinking. Go for it. What Have you Have you got an interesting coin? No, but I do have my wallet here and we're going to have an audio treat as I open it up into the microphone. Actually, that's really quiet. Is that the sound Jingle of flies coins. coming out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just jiggle around a little bit. <laughs> a fusty, a fusty sound. <laughs> that is almost the definition of fusty, isn't it? Sam's wallet. <laughs> <laughs> certainly is oh there we go I had the sound of the wallet closing Ooh. oh that wasn't you doing up your flies then <laughs> it was <laughs> done what I needed to right Tom uh, I've got a 2p coin heads or tails heads nice and simple heads great sound it has landed on tails and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go first okay thank you very much right so as I've mentioned already I'm talking about a great source that gives us a fantastic insight into why people buried their treasured belongings. And as I mentioned at university, I studied hordes in continental Europe during the period where the Roman Empire was being pressed by Germanic tribes. You studied hordes in continental Europe? Hoarding in continental Europe. Oh, yeah, not hoarding, whoring. right. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that, no, not Amsterdam <laughs> or Prague. Uh, no. um, we all studied that as teenagers, Tom. <laughs> Sorry, we all had a friend who studied that as teenagers. (laughs) Yes, there was always that one person. So this source is often referred to when people study hordes because it it gives people an idea of what was going through the minds of people who buried this treasure. And uh, possibly surprisingly, it's Samuel Pepys' diary that was written in the 17th century in London. Oh. More precisely, from 1660 to 1669. An incredible source. I even think... It's studied in other countries as well, so I don't think it's one of those sources that's only studied in the UK. Do you know what my favourite quote from Samuel Pepys' diary is? 
because and it's possibly not a quote but the Samuel Pepys diary obviously very very important but it is still a diary and has loads of just completely benign things that he did every day yes yes yeah and my favorite quote is walking down the street and went into a coffee shop because I needed a shit <laughs> <laughs> let me just see if I can Thursday 28th of September 1665 feeling for a chamber pot there was none I, having called the maid up out of her bed, she had forgot, I suppose, to put one there, so I was forced in this strange house to rise and shit in the chimney twice, and so to bed, (laughs) and was very well again. (laughs) Shit in the chimney twice. That's defying gravity. Well, I assume he means shit in the fireplace. Shit in the fire. (laughs) But then... To get a whole new meaning to throw another log on the fire. <laughs> yeah. <Isn't it>? <laughs> Christ, should have pissed on it. It would have been like a bloody Scandinavian sauna. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's Samuel Pepys for you. Exactly what I was going to go on to say, which is it's a famous document because of its scope. So it talks about everything from King Charles II's dog doing a shit on the deck of a ship. <laughs> To the Great Fire of London. Whatever you want to research, Samuel Pepys has got it covered. He's <laughs> got it covered. But that's it. It's the fact that it covers everything. It's very personal and it's very detailed. And it's just a lot of everyday stuff. So very, very interesting. Um, how, did you, how did you know about him shitting in the chimney? Is this just one of those weird facts you know? Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, what can I say? Would you be massively surprised, Tom, if I knew that Thomas Pepys' diary was quite scatological, given, <laughs> given this podcast? <laughs> You said Thomas Pepys. Sorry, Thomas. Peeps. Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys. So I, w- I won't say too much about the source because it's been covered by a lot of other podcasts and it's really well known. it's full of shit. It's full of shit. Here's a very quick summary and some context. So Pepys worked for the Royal Navy and was a member of Parliament. He was a successful individual because he was very organised, hardworking and had good attention to detail. He also negotiated political upheavals very successfully. So he'd lived through the English Civil War between 1642 and 51 and the subsequent protectorate, or interregnum, whatever you want to call it, and then the restoration with Charles II returning to his English throne. So he'd been through a lot of political upheaval and survived it, and he kept his diary for close to 10 years. It's a lot of words as well. There's actually a really great website that publishes a page a day, for those of you who want to devote 10 years of your life (laughs) to hearing about Samuel Pepys. In fact, it was that site, I think, where I just picked up that quote from. You just quickly quickly double-checked your, your, your memory, yeah. So in Pepys' diary, there are two occasions where he buries personal belongings. And the first is during the Great Fire of London that destroyed huge amounts of London from September the 2nd, 1666, to the 6th of September. Great day, that's my birthday. Well, not 1666, oh. but the 6th of September is my birthday. You look very young for it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like I'm like the uh, crusader from Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, so tens of thousands of buildings were destroyed um, with the modern-day monetary value in the billions of pounds, and something like 85 to 90% of the people of London lost their homes. So, catastrophic. And it was uh, at a similar time as the Great Plague. So, really not a very good time to be alive if you didn't... No. You know, you'd survived the Civil War, which was incredibly destructive, <laughs> survived the bubonic plague, and then your house burns down... So yeah, not not a great time to live, really. <laughs> yes, you chose poorly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On the first day of the fire, Peeps um, just had a good look around, and at one point with a chap called Captain Cock, which for some reason I thought was worth referencing. <laughs> 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 Nothing funny here. Commander of many seamen. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very. I thought it sounded a little bit like a role in a university rugby team's drinking game you know yes it does oh hugo hugo you're captain cock today for throwing a miss pass that got intercepted oh ha 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 oh Oh, and george george you have to wear the mitre of archbishop of banterbury for your wizard japes today in the showers uh yeah (laughs) being captain cock doesn't sound like a fun job that's not the job you want is it in a rugby team no no (laughs) (laughs) captain of the cocks which is usually, there's usually 15 of them in a rugby yeah. team for Americans. And Captain Cock has to raise every single one of their masts behind the bike shed. Peeps uh, was so dismayed by the fire in these first couple of days that he couldn't actually bring himself to discuss the sale of his closet to a friend. That's how drastic <laughs> this event was. Wow. I know, and he, d- he did need to get rid of that closet, but he just couldn't bring himself to discuss it. 
with someone. He'd literally filled it with shit <laughs> for want of a chamber pot. <laughs> like, I took five shits in that closet. I can't, can't like, bear to let it go. Christ, thank Christ this fire. <laughs> because I didn't have the time to clear it out before the, the chap arrived to look at my closet. Chambermaid, chambermaid, I've got a job for you today. I've got, could you clear my closet? I had two jobs in the fire last night. <laughs> I basically soiled everything in my room. I have shut this house down. <laughs> Which is the only reason I have a maid. Because I actually quite like cooking and ironing. I just don't like clearing up my own shit. <laughs> I am in many ways a modern gentleman. <laughs> many, but not all. At the night time of the first day on the fire, Peeps packed up his belongings, arranged for many of them to be carted out of London. Quote, I did remove my money and iron chests into my cellar as thinking that the safest place. So early on, he's starting to think about his treasure and what he can do to keep them safe. On the 4th of September, the fire is still out of control and Peeps continues to describe the chaos in London as people try to save their belongings and other people in safer suburbs are inundated with requests to keep other people's belongings. Uh, Peeps himself has some belongings at a friend's house and some held in a barge at Deptford. And, quote, Sir W. Batten, not knowing how to remove his wine, did dig a pit in the garden and laid it in there and I took the opportunity of laying all the papers of my office that I could not otherwise dispose of. And in the evening, Sir W. Penn and I did dig another and put our wine in it, and I my parmesan cheese as well as my wine and some other things. (laughs) So there you have it. His most treasured belongings. Yes, cheese and wine. Cheese and wine. What a cultured man. To our lovely listener, Giraud, who's learning English now, he's just nodding along sagely to that. (laughs) As a Frenchman, he concurs, I'm sure, that there is nothing, yes, nothing worth, more valuable. worth saving more in a fire than your cheese, cheese and wine. Your cheese and your wine. <laughs> it is quite interesting, though, isn't it? Presumably his other more obvious valuables had been sent off already. And he just had a few little things that he thought, well, actually, shit, that parmesan's pretty damn expensive. I mean, to be fair, and, a wheel of parmesan. You know, my collection of wines is pretty expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And at the time as well, I think it was quite a delicacy. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have any record in the diary of Peeps returning to find his cheese and wine. Presumably he did, but, you know, we don't actually know for sure. But the question is, obviously, why did Peeps bury the cheese? And I think he was probably awfully <laughs> fond is, of campfires That is a, que- that is a question you never thought you'd ask, right? <laughs> <laughs> that could be a dissertation title, couldn't it? <laughs> Why did Peeps bury his cheese? Also, a dissertation title and also a children's book. It could be both, couldn't it? <laughs> yes. Can you spot Samuel Peeps's cheese children? Is it under the shit? It'll be, yes! it. It'll be one of those where at the end of the book it, it says, as a bonus, you can go back through this book and see how many turds you can find. <laughs> There's three in the shower. <laughs> Two in the fire. And one on a barge in Deptford. I'm afraid, uh, Mr Peeps, the barge is overloading with all your turds. <laughs> I mean, we got your treasure in your turds. What would you like us to get rid of? Oh, I'd say can't get rid of any of my turds. You'll have to throw the treasure over. <laughs> my dear boy, they're one and the same. <laughs> throw the plate. Throw the plates over onto the, into the river. We can't possibly get rid of any of my turds. How about, here's a plan, how about we put the turds on the plates? I'm afraid that, that doesn't, a... it doesn't solve the problem of the weight, sir. It still weighs the same. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway. But yes, a big fan of fondue, yes. Yeah, probably a big fan of soily fondue. But, oh, yeah, let's not say that again. That's a great prog rock album, by the way. Soily fondue. <laughs> Soily fondue by Samuel Pepys's Buried Cheese. <laughs> Soily fondue sounds like a jazz musician. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? And on the on the cello, we've got Soily fondue. Soily fondue's flute solo. Yes. <laughs> the soil the Soily fondue brass quartet. <laughs> So there you go, that was, yeah, so Sawley Fondue. <laughs> In reality, this burying of the palms, and I think kind of highlights the fact that decision-making in the face of an immediate approaching, rapidly approaching threat 
becomes a bit panicked. You sort of think, well, what have, I, what have I got of value that I forgot to bury? Let's bury the cheese. And this is certainly seems to uh, be the case with many, for example, Anglo-Saxon hordes or Roman hordes when, for example, the Romans were being smashed by Germanic tribes in the north. And, for example, when the when the Romans left Britain in, was it 410? Yes. There are hordes from these times. And it seems almost like a panicked, shit, what's happening? You know, we've got Anglo-Saxon, we've got Angles and dupes on our foreshore on our shores mm. so this is very much like roman empires collapsing people on the fringes of the roman empire are starting to panic what do we do what do we do let's just bury stuff and hopefully come back later and find it so why do you think it is tom that in all of these ancient treasure hordes we never find the cheese i know well it's it, that's the thing that that doesn't necessarily mean that cheese wasn't there indeed because it degrades doesn't it i suppose it does see i bet you hadn't thought of that had you for your smart little comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll swing back into my hovel now. <laughs> It'd be great cheese though, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine a parmesan that you from 1667. 2,000-year oh, parmesan. Think order. Of it. Oh, yeah, 400-year parmesan, yeah. Was it umagi? Is it, is it umagi, that sort of special flavour? that Umami. Umami. The second burial belongings was in 1667 during the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which was a war fought as the two empires, the Dutch and the British Empire, were jostling for dominance at sea to protect their military and commercial interests. More specifically, after the Dutch Navy had sailed up the Thames as far as Gravesend, which is very much part of Greater London now, and had captured the Royal Navy's flagship. After this event, a Dutch invasion seemed very real, the incident was also a major catastrophe for the Royal Navy, and so Pepys, who worked for the Royal Navy, was very concerned that he would potentially come under attack from the Dutch, but also would come under attack from domestic rivals. So he talks about this on the 12th of June, 1667, quote, So God help us, and God knows what disorders we may fall into, and whether any violence on this office, or perhaps some severity on our persons, as being reckoned by the silly people, or perhaps may, by policy of the state, be thought fit to be condemned by the King and Duke of York, and so put to trouble, though, God knows. I have in my own person done my full duty, I am sure. So he's sort of not sure about he's a bit where nervous. the threat's going to come from. Yeah. He's nervous. On the plus side, he's, he's shitting himself. Yeah, I said, oh, literally, I was just about to say the same thing. <laughs> Every cloud has a silver lining, if you're Samuel Pepys, <laughs> and you like a poo. Samuel poops. <laughs> After you, nice. I saw what you did there. After the, um, <laughs> it's a thinker. It's a thinker. <laughs> After the Great Fire of London, he may have, he, that would have been really troublesome for him, wouldn't it? Because there would have been no coffee shops for him to tr- pop into for a poo. No. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Fortunately, plenty of fires to <laughs> yeah. bend over. Brilliant. So he sends. Imagine a- the fondue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The soily fondue. Um, so he sends his values off with his sister and father. Now, this is very, very funny, I think. 10th of October, 1667, after things have settled down a bit, Samuel Pepys goes to find where his treasure has been buried. Quote, now this is a very abbreviated quote. It's quite a long passage. It's very amusing, but I've abbreviated it quite significantly. Quote, my father and I, with a dark lantern, into the garden with my wife, and there went about our great work to dig up my gold. But Lord... What a toss I was for some time in, that they could not justly tell where it was. But good God, to see how sillily they did it. Not half a foot underground, and in the sight of the world from a hundred places. But I was out of my wits almost, and the more from that, upon my lifting up the earth with a spud, I did discern that I had scattered the pieces of gold round about the ground among the grass and loose earth. And I perceived the earth was got among the, uh, the gold and wet, so that the bags were all rotten, and all the notes, with several pails of water and basins, at last washed the dirt off the pieces, and parted the pieces in the dirt, and then begun to tell them, and by the note which I had of the value of the hole in my pocket, do find that there was short above a hundred pieces. So it's basically a bit of a cock-up, So, but amusing to think of this of Samuel Pepys huffing and puffing because his wife and father have buried the, buried the treasure in a stupid place. <laughs> <laughs> and a sort of and can't remember where and the bags are rotten and it's all gone fucking everywhere <laughs> yeah it's just like a Laurel and Hardy sort of slapstick moment <laughs> but not only is that funny but it's also fascinating because it gives us a great insight into the sort of panicked state in which people buried these hordes and maybe why we find so many of them today because people possibly buried them somewhere but never actually found it again they may have actually gone looking yeah absolutely and just forgotten quite where it was buried absolutely 
He goes on to say that they went back out later that night to search for more of these coins because he was fearful that his neighbours had overseen them dig trying to find their treasure and during the night would have snuck over the fence and tried to get it themselves. So a really, really good example of people surviving a worrying period and uh, still potentially losing their treasure just because they didn't know where they buried it. So there you have it, Sam. That's Hmm. Samuel Pepys and his (laughs) two treasure hoarding moments in his in his diary fantastic I, we'll never know if he got the cheese back no we won't and that is one of <laughs> history's great mysteries it is indeed what and, happened and also to samuel peeps's cheese a tintin book that should have been written the mystery <laughs> yeah. the mystery of peeps's soiled fondue <laughs> what i particularly like with that last story is the image of uh, samuel peeps kind of scratching his head a hundred coins short after finding everything in the garden and his wife and his dad behind him going oh what could have happened to that money whilst enjoying fine new coats <laughs> he goes, those, Dave are those new shoes he's like no I've had, had these had these years They're very nice shoes very nice shoes Dave They've been worth almost oof, I'd say that's probably uh it's probably about 50 pieces of gold for something like that no 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 these no, these old things no <laughs> no got them from a charity shop his wife's just there with a lovely new brooch. Didn't you lose <laughs> oh, your don't old worry, shoes dear. in the Great Fire? Did you? I seem to remember you were on the hunt for some nice new shoes. <laughs> I thought you were going down a Lauren Hardy moment. I thought, I thought you no, had Samuel Pepys <laughs> scratching his head. Standing in a poo-filled pit, just going, that's another fine mess you've got <laughs> exactly. me into. <laughs> exactly. Turning around quickly with a spade over his shoulder and hitting his wife in the head. <laughs> And then turning back the other way when he hears her scream and whacking his father in the head. <laughs> and his father gets angry and just puts a giant wheel of cheese on his head and his head pops throughout the other side. Boing! <laughs> uh, Samuel Peeps drops his uh, spade and goes to pick it up and his trousers fall down. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, that's very interesting. And it is fascinating to see how people who consider themselves very sensible do slightly silly things in the heat of the moment. He, uh, yes, and I, I and it's not even in the heat of the moment. It's over a course of several days. He does a lot of silly things, Samuel Pepys. I mean, he's also he does. I mean, he's shit in a chimney for a start. I know, and he's constantly having <laughs> he's constantly having affairs, and he's constantly fondling maids, and um, going after <laughs> girls at church, and, and then sort of a couple of days later, apologising in his diary because he was such an awful fiend, and then he does it a couple of weeks later. <laughs> yes, that is standard behaviour, though, isn't it, for that kind of person. Yes, yeah, you. you oh, I'm know. a terrible person. I'll never do that again. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a bit of a twit, Samuel Peeps. <laughs> he's a bit of a lad. Bit of a lad, lad, lad. Captain Cock. <laughs> Fucking maids and digging with spades. That's Samuel Peeps. Why, why is he turned into a northerner? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I said it's a kind of a Bernard Manning working club comedian hasn't he hey hey I took a shit the other day so big my mother-in-law <laughs> I was about to say you'll never guess what my mother-in-law did with my treasure mm? hey beautiful well Tom well 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 for my topic today I'm, I'm going to be honest it's not the most unknown or silly thing that I've ever spoken about on this podcast in fact it's actually a pretty well known story if you're kind of into art or archaeology but the story behind it is so bloody interesting and actually I think the story behind it is relatively unknown uh, that I thought I'd talk about it anyway. So I'm going to. Uh, today, Tom, I'm going to talk about the Bactrian Horde. Now, you've done a couple of treasure modules, so I think you probably know a little bit about this, don't you? I have heard the name. Yeah, I have heard the name Bactrian Horde, but I'm still going to get a lot of value out of listening to this, Sam, because I don't, off the top of my head, I can't tell you anything about it. Good. Well, I do have an honourable mention first because I looked into... I was going to do treasure ships and buried treasure and pirates, but most of them have been done to death. And the stories... <laughs> buried, buried treasure and pirates. <laughs> Presumably you'd be... What's wrong with that? No, because no. you said it quite quickly, so it sounded like they were burying treasure and pirates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Just imagine, I just imagine going on an archaeological dig or metal detecting <laughs> and, uh, oh, we've got something here, and you start digging. <laughs> there's oh, a bit of, bit of a hat and as you dig a bit more his head pops out and goes <laughs> I've been here you for 400 me. years <laughs> finally someone's come and dug me up when I buried me treasure I slipped and fell under me own chest I've been here for donkey's years living off pieces of eating parrots it's very difficult to shiver your timbers when you're surrounded by soil <laughs> And as if there's one thing I like doing, it's shivering me timbers. That is my thing. <laughs> Insert comma, 
<laughs> I looked at buried treasure ships <laughs> and buried treasure, comma, and pirates. <laughs> Thank you. That's better. <laughs> But they've all been kind of done to death and the stories are all quite similar. If you do want some good ones to check out, I'm going to give an honourable mention to Amaro Pargo, who was a famous Spanish pirate who lost his treasure. He is actually a pretty interesting one. His real name was Amaro Rodriguez Felipe Itagiera Mahado. (laughs) That's a mouthful. Uh, Which is much harder to say than uh, Pargo. (laughs) <laughs> I can see why his nickname took off. Pargo is actually a kind of slippery fish in Spanish, which is either his nickname because he was very good at evading his attackers and slipping through their fingers, or because he looked like a fish. Because he had <laughs> Those are the two options. <laughs> yeah. He was like Kevin Costner yeah. from Waterworld. Yeah. <laughs> Gills and uh, very lovely shimmery scales. Yeah, and, and no What legs. a catch. Just a yeah. tail. <laughs> yeah, and no genitalia as such, just a catch-all cloaca. I thought that was a musical instrument. (laughs) Depends how you play it, Tom. Depends how you blow the fish. (laughs) That's what Soily Fondue plays, isn't it? Soily Fondue on the cloaca. (laughs) (laughs) That is, uh, that's definitely a show you want to go and see if you're ever in Bangkok. Yes. Pargo was a great Spanish corsair. He's probably the most famous Spanish pirate. And he actually battled Blackbeard. The two of them had a had a cannon-fueled Barney on the high seas. Had a beard and off. <laughs> had a beard off. <laughs> they charged at each other with their beards. Their like... interlocking follicles. <laughs> like... Someone's going to end up with a terrible carpet burn like on his cheeks. on heat, they were. <laughs> they were rotting away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very niche gay pornography we've just created there, isn't it? <laughs> I've got a fantastic image of the two of them. <laughs> like, like, like Billy Goat Gruff scuffing <laughs> their hooves at either end of a ship. <laughs> just charging at each other and butting chins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So this guy made a fortune on the high seas raiding British and Dutch ships and he used the money that he made to buy vineyards and what he would do is he would sail out to Cuba with his own wine and brandy and his own fleet of ships sell his stock make a fortune and then sail back blowing the absolute shit out of anything he found along the way making even more money Was there a connection here between him having lots of alcohol on board and then becoming very very violent (laughs) when the alcohols disappeared? No (laughs) No, absolutely not. It's not withdrawal. He's not an alcoholic. <laughs> Who can say? Who can say? Yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't considered that. Although you'd think that by the time he got to Cuba, he probably wouldn't have anything left to sell. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Juan for me, Juan for Cuba. <laughs> very good. So, yes, when he died, he left a note in his will saying that there was a chest of his greatest treasures, silk, gold, pearls and the like. And there was a catalogue of this all wrapped in a book in a parchment with a letter D on it. And this book, despite being written about in his will, was never found and neither was the treasure, although it's long been rumoured to be hidden in a cave somewhere in Tenerife or under the floorboards of one of his many villas dotted around the world, most of which have now been comprehensively sacked by treasure hunters. Either way, when he was buried... This is pretty badass. It was in a tomb marked with a winking skull and crossbones. Ooh. Which I thought was great. That's solid pirating. And a few years ago, he was exhumed, Tom. His grave was cracked open. Just pointing out that biologically, it's impossible for a skull to wink. Yeah, well, artistic license. (laughs) He was a fucking idiot, though, wasn't he? He was a superb pirate and not a very good anatomist. Yeah, exactly. Very good at wine, very good at brandy. Not so good at surgery. Good at beard rutting. He had a moustache like pure Velcro. <laughs> so he was he was exhumed, Tom, and this is really interesting and rather silly. Why do you think that Pargo was dug up out of the ground? Oh, I don't, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think up a silly answer, but no, none of them are coming to mind. I don't think you'll come up with an answer as stupid and morally dubious as the true story behind this. It was done by proper archaeologists from the Independent University of Madrid, but he was dug up, Tom, as a PR stunt paid for by video games company Ubisoft to coincide and mark the release of Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag. (laughs) Yeah, that is pretty unethical, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, isn't it just? I mean, the guy was a pirate, but that's still fairly unethical. He was a pirate. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's not completely irrelevant. It's not like they're just digging up children who oh, died in the you, plague. Talking of, <laughs> did you see, this was in the news a couple of, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And you know when they dig up these bodies, they like to do the face reconstructions so that we can see what the oh, person was like. Is this the really shit-looking medieval it was, it was guy? A, it was a... With a tiny face yeah, and a giant exactly head. that's exactly what it was. It looked like... That is ex- <laughs> it was the most it like hilarious face. <laughs> what it looked like is... Do you remember a, a few more years ago, there was that very, very ancient painting of Jesus in a church somewhere in Spain yes, that a little yes. old lady very kindly decided to restore despite having no artistic talent whatsoever. Yeah. And she just made a guy with a giant moon face and a giant That's moon right. head and a tiny little guy in the middle. And he looks exactly like her shitty reconstruction of Jesus. It was like that crossed with Bob Hoskins, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, uh, he was he was not an attractive man. It was just a very very small face. It, it had, his eyes, nose, and mouth were very close together. It was like a, someone had drawn a smiley face on a beach ball. It, yeah. it was the sort of guy that wouldn't do very well at Stalingrad because the assassins would get him quite quickly. His head was so big. You know? <laughs> yes, quite an easy target. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like a zeppelin wandering around. <laughs> it looked a little bit like. Uh, what's that cartoon? Looked like Hey Arnold. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I was looking for. Looked a little bit like Hey Arnold. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, yeah, so that is uh, the very brief honourable mention for Pargo. And I was going to do Pirates and Treasure until I kind of relearned or learned the backstory of the Bactrian Horde, which I just thought was so amazing and sort of heartwarming that I had to talk about it today because it's a treasure that was found, lost, found again, and survived about 30 years of absolute hell hidden right under the noses of a regime that would almost certainly have destroyed it if it hadn't been hidden by a communist with an unusual respect for art. Good work. Yeah, so it's a really kind of nice and strange story. Now, I know traditionally in communism, everything is supposed to be for everyone, but it is amazing how often the most precious and lavish treasures in communist regimes end up as the private desk ornaments of supposedly the most pious Leninists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, isn't the classic one that the, the Chinese politicians with rather expensive watches? Yeah, you find, finding valuable art and then keeping it for the people is fairly, fairly rare in communism. Yeah. It has to be said. Uh, of course, this lavish Tsarist jewellery is property of every good Soviet citizen. And so I must do my communist duty by keeping it safe right around my neck <laughs> or occasionally in my desk drawer along with the collection of uh, the people's favourite Fabergé eggs. <laughs> of course, fortunately, these days, the current Russian leadership would never take state treasures and hoard them for their own personal use. No, 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 no. And with that, goodbye to our 37 Russian listeners who will no longer be able to access this podcast. It's been a pleasure and I'm sorry. That's Videnia. Or attempt to influence the next American general election via our podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or British general election yes, via our podcast. Allegedly, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, Tom. So today we are heading to Afghanistan and the year 1978. Greek Soviet archaeologist Victor Sariandini is digging around in a place called Jowls Jam, which is right in the northern tip of Afghanistan Jowls on the border with Turkmenistan. Jowls Jam. Don't make me say it again. I struggled That's to pronounce Jowls it the first Jam time. Jowls Jam sounds like the sort of scummy deposits that you find in a fat man's double chin. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, man, really? Jow, jowly Jam. <laughs> oh. He's also the drummer. For... <laughs> yeah, for the jazz band. <laughs> for the jazz band. <laughs> the soiled fondue. <laughs> jowly Jam and soiled fondue. Anyway, now this guy lived and breathed Bronze Age archaeology and discovered some of the greatest treasures in Central Asia, including, for example, the oldest known temple for the religion that would become Zoroastrianism. Oh, yeah. Freddie Predated... Absolutely, yeah. Freddie Mercury was a Zoroastrian. This temple predated Zoroaster himself by a thousand years, so really, really, really far back. He discovered whole cities, whole civilizations dating back to the 25th century BC. Wow. Really, really kind of prolific and very, very good archaeologist. Anyway, in 1978, he was digging at a site called Tiliatepe, or Golden Hill, appropriately named, it turns out, and came across six undisturbed tombs. And in these tombs was a treasure almost unlike any other. Over 20,000 gold and silver coins, jewellery, crowns, trinkets, all dating back to around the 1st century BC to the 1st century AD. 
nearly 2,000 years that have been stuck in the ground. And it is a fantastic collection. The craftsmanship is just, it's astonishing. I'll try and put some photos on social media because if you like gold, it really is just like next level. It is beautiful. I mean, it's a little bit gaudy for my tastes, but if you're a footballer listening, you'll love it. <laughs> the burials are believed to be of a Scythian or Parthian royal family. Now, these were two empires that were kind of contemporaneous with the Romans, but the treasure comes from everywhere, literally all over the world. There are depictions of Greek gods, there are coins from as far away as Gaul showing the Roman Emperor Tiberius. Bear in mind this is Afghanistan, so these coins have come a hell of a long way. Yeah. There's references to cities in some of this treasure thousands of kilometres away on the Bosphorus Sea. There's ivory from India, there's Chinese bronzes. It really is an amazing cultural mishmash. Interestingly as well, some of the coins, some of the treasures, are forgeries in gold of less valuable versions. So they've picked up some Roman coins or some Greek coinage, thought that's not nearly treasury enough for us, and they've remade it, they've forged it in gold. Nice. So there's some absolutely amazing stuff in there. But actually, what was in the hoard is kind of the least interesting part, because it's what happens next that's just a brilliant story. Just after its discovery in 1979, the Soviet-Afghan war began and would last for about the next 10 years. And if there's one thing you know about wars, it's that they are very, very bad news if you happen to be a treasure made of gold. Historically, treasure doesn't do well in wars. It's one of the reasons people hide it. Yeah. So the hoard was originally stored in the Afghan National Museum in Kabul, but that was repeatedly looted as Afghanistan descended into chaos. And after one such attack, the treasures went missing. A huge hunt was launched to try and get them back, but nothing was ever found, despite the efforts of international treasure hunters who scoured the black market, you know, auctions around the world, and efforts of a few archaeologists who did manage to get into Taliban-controlled Afghanistan in the 1990s. Fortunately, the burial site itself never fell into Taliban hands because it would almost certainly have been destroyed if it was, like all other archaeological remains in Afghanistan that were pre-Islamic. Pretty much all of them got completely ruined by the Taliban. But the burial ground survived. The treasure, though, wasn't found. So what happened to it? Where do you think, Tom, is the last place you would expect to find a lost great treasure, Tom? Oh, Kidderminster. High Very Street. Close. Kidderminster High Street. <laughs> Kidderminster High Greg's. Street. Greg's on Kidderminster <laughs> High Street. No, pork pie. Greg's, by the way, for our American Greg's. audience, is a budget bakery. <laughs> in Kidderminster High Street. <laughs> Very close. Almost, Tom. Almost. Because what do you find on high streets, Tom? You find banks. And yes, this great buried treasure that was lost for all and scoured for for years was just in the bank around the corner. Right. And who had taken it there? Well, here's the thing. The government had pretended to loot its own treasure. Ah, and they never expect that, do they? No, that's the last um, thing you expect yeah. is for a communist government to loot treasure. That's the last thing you'd expect, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and that's precisely why they did it. But what they did, they pretended that it was stolen by looters. And to protect it, they'd actually then just hidden it in a vault underneath Kabul Central Bank. And then completely forgotten about it in the confusion. What had happened is in 1989, the last communist president of Afghanistan, a guy called Mohammed Najibullah, had ordered the hoard to be hidden to keep it out of the hands of advancing warlords and the Taliban, knowing that it would it would be immediately lost and destroyed had that happened. And it was just in time as well. The communist government fell a year or so later, and he himself came to a rather sticky end after getting trapped in Kabul and seeking asylum at the Indian government compound, where he lived for a few years before being killed in a Taliban raid in 1996. So very, very dangerous time to be around in Kabul. Again, especially if you're a golden treasure. Now, he had a cunning idea to make sure that the gold did not fall into the Taliban's hands. As well as hiding it, only a handful of people knew of its existence there. And of those handful of people, five were given different keys to the vault. And only by bringing together all five keys Ooh, could the vault yeah. be unlocked. This is getting very Tomb Raider. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, isn't it just? And none of the five knew who any of the other five were. There were no official records. Their names were never written <clears> down. <throat> I was thinking like, like um, kind of fifth elements you have to bring together or, or just the Power Rangers <laughs> only by yeah, joining your keys rangers. in the middle <laughs> yeah 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 Power Rangers you've got the red key holder the green key holder the yellow um, black and white yeah that was the ones I actually got taught martial arts 
by the guy who was the Green Power Ranger. I got taught how to kind of do a Hollywood-style sword fighting by him. Get out of here. Yeah. Was he proud of the fact that he was the Green Power Ranger? Was it the first thing he said? He did, yeah. He said, hello, I'm X. You might well know me as the Green Power Ranger. <laughs> Here's how to sword fight. So he taught you how to sword... What sort of swords were you fighting with? Samurai swords? We were fighting swords. with samurai swords, yeah. Wow. I can't remember which version of the samurai sword it was, because there's a few different kinds, but it was the, the longer two-handed two handed one. Weren't samurai swords used largely as a way of controlling the masses? They weren't used in sort of man-on-man combat. They were used more like a, a truncheon by police officers. They were more just to sort of chop away I peasants. I, I suspect they were used for both. Yeah, yeah. But they're not like a sort of like a, <laughs> um, a medieval broadsword from Europe. They were very much about whacking each other until one of you gave in. They were slicing swords. They were designed to they were designed very much to cut rather than to stab or crush like a European sword was. Yeah. So the big European swords were designed to really crush. Clobber. Clobber they were people. almost like hammers rather than swords. Yeah. And the Romans obviously had stabby swords, the gladius, which was designed for cut and thrust. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, where were we? Where were we? Yes, yeah, so only a handful of people, uh, including the Power Rangers, knew where this treasure was hidden. Unfortunately... <laughs> This plan had a flaw. It was very, very good for keeping the treasure secret. It was very, very bad for recovering the treasure. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because not only do you no longer know where the treasure is, you don't know who's got the keys to the vault. Was there a plan to get these people back together? Was there like a series of clues that they had to follow that would bring them back together so that they could get in the vault? If only there was. That would have been brilliant if there were a series of kind of riddles. Da Vinci Code. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it didn't go quite that deep. But they were scattered around the country, these people. They were, specifically, they were chosen to be from different places around the country so that they couldn't be easily brought together and forced to open the safe. And when the safe, when the vault was discovered, they were, they were pretty sure that this is where the treasure was, but they weren't entirely sure. Afghan President Hamid Karzai wanted to celebrate the overthrow of the Taliban by reopening the vault and showing off this treasure which had survived all of these years of chaos. It would have been a major PR coup, but they literally could not open this vault. It was an impregnable wall, a proper, proper big, you know, like you'd expect to find in a mint, a huge, huge, huge thick door. And there was no way to find the key holders. They, no one knew who they were. You know so who I would have called in this situation? Who would you have called? Elma McCurdy. Why would you have called... Cry- oh, because he was an appalling safe cracker. Exactly. He was very, very good with dynamite. Because he was very, always, very always putting too much dynamite on. I think you need to reference where you got this from. <laughs> um, I don't know what episode it is. the episode on Elma McCurdy it's and a, our audience it's a very probably good don't episode. have that dedication. <laughs> it's a very good episode about an American, a useless American outlaw called Elma McCurdy who um, ended up being a grotesque statue in the back of a circus ride. Yeah, he was killed in a police shootout, wasn't he? He was an appallingly shit criminal who was killed in a police shootout embalmed, stolen by a circus freak show. (laughs) What episode was it? A bit heavy on the dynamite America Week, which is episode 21. There you go. Episode 21. Well worth a listen. That's more than half our life ago. Yes. Yeah, so uh, do do go check that episode out. It's a great episode. Anyway, a a national campaign was launched to find these five key holders known as the Tawadars and unite them like the Power Rangers or like Like in Fifth Element to get this safe open. In the meantime, Hamid Karzai launched a high court battle to get permission to literally blow the safe doors off Elmer McCurdy, (laughs) quite probably destroying the hoard in the process, but he was willing to go through with potentially destroying the hoard to get his hands on it. Fortunately, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was me clicking my knuckles, sorry. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a slow clap for having a Slow car. hand clap for a no, good um, idea, yeah. Slowly, one by one, the key holders did come forward over the course of a number of years. They had somehow all managed to survive the Taliban. Presumably, though, they'd spent the last few years trying to root around in their man drawer to find the key yeah. alongside all the other odd keys and bone yeah. charges. <laughs> just like, come back with a huge hoard, just turn up in Kabul with a huge hoard it's of, one like, of these. random keys. For I don't know which lots. one it is. It's one of these Sheds. keys. <laughs> yeah. It's a shed from a house I lived in 10 years ago. This is a key to a 1979 Austin Maxi. This is the key to... <laughs> this is the key to my heart. And so shortly before the vault was due to be blown up, the five key holders were united alongside the man who'd originally discovered the treasure, Victor, Victor Sarianidi. Why did I make myself say that again? And it was very ceremoniously <laughs> opened. The vault doors swung open slowly and the entire lot was indeed inside the safe. All 22,000 artefacts had survived 
and was still safe and in one piece. And an agreement was reached with the French to catalogue and store the finds. It's always risky letting a European country get their hands on your archaeological <laughs> treasures. <coughs> Elkin marbled. <coughs> but uh, but the, French were, the French were very honourable about the entire thing. And the treasures were taken on a world tour whilst a new museum was being built for them. So millions of people got to enjoy these fantastic golden artefacts that had managed to survive the Taliban, Soviet-Afghan war, and 30 years of absolute horror by uh, largely being hidden <laughs> exactly where you'd expect to find treasure. Yeah, in a bank, <laughs> just round the corner. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. And so did uh, is there any idea why the Bactrian Horde was uh, placed in the ground in the first place? Oh, it was in a tomb, wasn't it? Did yes, it was, it was a burial hoard for a, for hoard, a local yeah, okay. royal family. But obviously Afghanistan being on the Silk Road, yes. and the Silk Road uh, didn't really ex- exist by the first century AD in the way that we know it, but it was still a very important trading route. And the Parthians and the Scythians, these two empires, were very much influenced by Alexander the Great because he'd swept through in the 3rd, 4th century AD, uh, BC. And so they were very keen on Greek culture. They still followed a lot of the Greek gods. But at the same time... On Instagram. On Instagram, yeah. Loved their stories. <laughs> kept on slipping into their DMs. <laughs> Just imagine an Aphrodite repeatedly put putting up pictures of her ass. Absolutely, yeah. In yoga pants. Pictures of herself with just kind of little stars over her nipples and you had to pay $5 a month if you wanted to see the full oh, show. This is on Instagram, is it? Uh, well, yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't know where you would find such, <laughs> such sites, but if, if, I, if I came across one, I'd certainly uh, avoid Report it. Report like it, yeah. <laughs> it's horribly inappropriate. Horribly inappropriate. Uh. Darling, darling, why? I, I went on the history on your phone. And you seem to be looking at a lot of rather dirty... Research, darling, research. <laughs> I love the Greek goddesses. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that is the story of the Bactrian Horde, Tom. Fascinating. Can I give another shout-out? You can, yeah, To someone who I think we can put in our Hall of Fame, our top bloke Hall of Fame. Go on, then. You reminded me of this chap, and it's Khalid al-Assad, the Syrian archaeologist, uh. who was the head of antiquities yes, in yes, yes. Uh, Palmyra. He was uh, beheaded by ISIS because he refused... It was something to do with refusing to help them loot the museum or something. Yes, absolutely. He wouldn't give. He wouldn't open up the museum at... Uh, it was a Palmyra, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. He was killed by them for trying to protect the ruins. Yes, absolutely. Top bloke, top bloke. shout out for that guy. Top bloke. Khaled yes. al-Assad, top bloke. Yeah, I went to Syria before the Civil War. It's absolutely beautiful. And like the archaeology there was just astonishing. It was, it was my favourite country. It was my favourite country in the world. Such a shame what's happened there. Anyway, a sad note to end the podcast on. But yeah, he definitely deserves a top bloke award. Excellent. Well, top I, I, bloke. What a thoroughly enjoyable podcast that was to record. Yeah. Very I think good. so. Did we already decide what we were going to do next week? Were we going to jump onto archaic laws? Archaic laws we were going to try. Let's give that a go. I think it might be more tricky than we initially think, but we'll go for archaic laws. If it turns out to be really tricky, then we apologise if it's not archaic laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or it's just not very funny. Uh, yeah. One of the... <laughs> yeah, or it's shit. <laughs> yeah. Or both. It can... Well, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. If you have, please do tell your friends about us. Leave us a review. That would really help on your podcasting app of choice. Post us on social media. And we will see you again next week. Uh, Oh, I'll tell you where our social media is. It's that underscore was underscore genius on Twitter. At that was genius podcast on Facebook. And at that was genius on Instagram. Right. That's it from us. Tom, go to bed. I'm going to put some clothes on because it's nearly time for me to go to work. And it's winter. <laughs> and it's winter and it's cold and I'm in the garden burying my cheese. <laughs> soiling, Say goodbye, soiling Tom. Soiling cheese in the garden. All right. <laughs> goodbye, listeners. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. And to play us out, here's the soiled fondue with... <laughs> <laughs> with their classic hit Two Shits in a Chimney. <laughs>